Father, we do thank you for uh, your word to us. Thank you that you're a God who has spoken uh, by his prophets and by Christ Jesus, the everlasting Son. Uh, we thank you that your word is unchanging. And as we come to your word now, we pray that you would help us to understand more of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And that therefore uh, we would be guarded against any error uh, that we may hear or that may creep into our hearts. Father, we pray that you would establish us in the true faith today. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you could uh, please turn in your Bibles there to the book of 1 Timothy and uh, chapter 1. We're starting this brand new sermon series this morning, looking at this great letter from the Apostle Paul to his friend and his co-worker Timothy. On Friday morning, uh, just as I was about to return to studying this particular passage, I received a message asking me to pray for a particular church that I know of in another country, a church that at the moment is going through a very difficult trial. It turns out that uh, there is a cult that has targeted this church, and the cult is seeking to undermine this church from within. Now, amongst other things, this cult teaches that only they have secret knowledge about the way of salvation. They teach that salvation is by good works. They believe in special revelation that is outside of the Bible and which contradicts the Bible. And they believe that only their leader has the right interpretation of Scripture. The pastor of this church undergoing this attack writes as follows. He says, generally, this cult doesn't evangelize people in the traditional sense, trying to share with unchurched people the good news of Jesus. The way they operate is to send recruiters into existing churches to form relationships with them in order to remove them from the church establish them in the cult, and then use them to recruit more people from the church. The cult has been active in recruiting people in the last few years and has done significant damage to a number of churches. One church lost a number of families, including worship leaders, kids and youth leaders, community group leaders, and even an elder of the church. And as I read that report on Friday morning, I couldn't help but notice the striking similarities between what that church is going through today and what Paul is writing about here in this first letter to Timothy. Now, to understand fully the context of this letter, we need to rewind about five years before it was written. Five years beforehand, uh, the Apostle Paul was coming to the end of a three-year stint ministering in that great city of Ephesus. In many ways, it had been a, a very successful time 
of gospel ministry. But as Paul was saying farewell to the elders of that church, he had these words to say to them. Luke records them for us in Acts chapter 20. Paul says to these Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Then fast forward five years, and this warning that Paul had given to the Ephesian elders has now come true. This church in Ephesus is undergoing this attack, which in so many ways is very similar to that report that I read on Friday morning. Uh, These false teachers have come to the church. In some cases, they've managed to get into positions of leadership even there. And they're now in the process of dragging people away from the truth and away from the church. So what is Paul going to do about this situation which has now come about? And his response to this distressing situation is to get his trusted friend and co-worker, Timothy, to go and minister in the church in Ephesus and to deal with these problems. So just glance briefly at verse 3 for a moment. Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So first of all, who is this person, Timothy? Well, from the New Testament, we know a few things about who Timothy was. He was from a place called Lystra. His mother was a Jewish believer. His father was a Gentile unbeliever. And from an early age, Timothy's mom and his grandmother had taught him the scriptures. Timothy himself had come to faith in Christ. Then a little bit later on, a few years later, the Apostle Paul was traveling through Lystra on his second missionary journey. He came to Lystra, he met the young man Timothy as he now was, and he recruited him uh, to be a co-worker in his team. And then since then, Timothy had been working alongside Paul in his ministry, traveling around with him, preaching the gospel, uh, assisting Paul in his work in various ways. And Timothy, as Paul writes this letter, is still reasonably young. Let no one despise you for your youth, he says to him later on. Temperamentally, he seems to be a very timid sort of person. So, for example, in his second letter to Timothy, Paul reminds him that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control. As well as that, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthian church, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. 
Timothy, you see, strikes us as someone who's very timid, someone who's very easily intimidated, someone who is in a, a great need of encouragement. And as well as that, it would appear that he didn't really enjoy the best of health either. So later on in this letter, Paul says to him, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And you can imagine, can't you, how Timothy must have felt being given this assignment by the Apostle Paul. He's young, he's timid, he isn't in great health, and he has been left in this big cosmopolitan city of Ephesus to try and lead the church there, which is coming under attack from these false teachers. You can imagine, can't you, how daunted Timothy must have felt going into this situation. And that's why Paul decided to write this letter to him. So just glance ahead for a moment at chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This letter, you see, is, is to give Timothy the advice and the help and the instruction that he needs to lead the church well, even in the face of this attack. And so Paul, in this letter, is going to cover all sorts of different issues to do with the life of the local church and how the local church can remain healthy. He's going to write about sound doctrine and how to protect it from error. He's going to talk about public worship, how that should be conducted. He's going to talk about church leadership, the kind of people to be elders and deacons within the life of the church. He's going to talk about pastoral care, how that ought to be carried out, and so on. Other different matters as well. And with this letter in hand, Timothy will have a, a great deal of instruction in terms of how to lead that church in Ephesus well, even through this difficult time in which they are now going through. And of course, these principles that Paul sets out in this letter don't just apply to Ephesus in the first century, but they apply, don't they, to every Christian congregation in all times and in all places. And so it's my hope that as we look at these things over these next few weeks, uh, that we will know more of what it means for us to be a healthy church today. So after those initial greetings in the first couple of verses, which we'll come back to later on, in verses 3 to 7, Paul begins the main body of the letter by outlining what it is that Timothy's up against in Ephesus. He's going to outline basically three things about the ministry of these harmful opponents who are seeking to undermine the church there. He's going to write about the content of their ministry. He's going to write about the effect of their ministry. And he's going to write also about the kind of people they themselves are, these false teachers. So just briefly, let's look at these three things. Firstly, the content of their teaching, which is false. The content of their teaching is 
false. Or as Paul puts it very simply there at the end of verse 3, they are teaching different doctrine. Now Paul, already during those three years in Ephesus, had declared to the church there the whole counsel of God. That's what he says there in Acts chapter 20 when he's saying farewell to the the elders in, in Ephesus. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So we know that this church did not lack any doctrine at all. They'd been taught every doctrine that God has given to us. But now these other teachers have come along and they're offering something different, different to doctrine, as if the whole counsel of God that they've already received is not enough. And verse 4 then spells out what exactly it is that is being taught by these people, what this different doctrine actually is. Paul says they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, we have some examples of the kind of teaching that Paul is talking about here. We've got books that were written roughly the same time and from the same region as where Paul is writing about here. And what these books do is this. They take stories from the Old Testament and then they rewrite these stories. But as they rewrite the stories, they add into them lengthy genealogies. You thought the Old Testament had enough genealogies already, but these people put even more genealogies in their stories. Lengthy genealogies of people who were never mentioned in Scripture. And then around these lengthy genealogies, they tell mythical stories about these made-up people. Fanciful things that these people supposedly have done. And the intention in in writing those books is very clear, isn't it? It's as if to say, well, you've heard the story of the Bible. You've heard it from Paul or whoever. And he's given you the counsel of God. And and that's all well and good. But you see, there is something more that you need to know if you really want to take your Christianity up to the next level. And there are people the Bible never mentions and there are stories the Bible never tells. And you need to start following those things if you want to develop fully as a Christian. And you see, by telling them these myths and these endless genealogies, they are offering them different doctrines, false doctrines. And as we saw earlier on, this kind of teaching is still out there in the world today, isn't it? It maybe looks somewhat different on the outside. It may be dressed up in 21st century garb. It may be presented to us in modern day language and concepts. And yet at the heart of it, it is still the same. It says to us, well, yes, you've got the Bible, uh, but you must understand the Bible is not enough. Uh, You need to go beyond what the Bible says. You need extra revelation on top of the Bible if you really want to advance fully as a Christian person. So maybe, for example, you need to get a particular book written by someone who who says they've died and gone to heaven and then have come back to earth again. They can tell us what it's really like in heaven. You'll not get that kind of insight just from the Bible. And you see, it is exactly the, the same kind of thing that Paul is talking about here, isn't it? He says they're devoting themselves to myths. It's different doctrine. 
The content of their teaching is false. And then Paul goes on to speak about the effect of their teaching. And he says the effect is fruitlessness. Fruitlessness. Look at what Paul says about the the effect of the teaching in verse 4. He says that these myths and these endless genealogies promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The church, and especially its leaders, have been given this great privilege of being stewards of the gospel, stewards of the good news that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, Paul says in chapter 3, the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It is the church's calling to hold up the truth of the gospel before an unbelieving world. It's the job of the church to protect that gospel from errors creeping in. And a healthy church, therefore, will be a church that takes that stewardship from God seriously. They keep the gospel front and center at all times. As someone has helpfully put it, the church must get the gospel right, the church must get the gospel in, and the church must get the gospel out. And when by faith the church does that, we're being good stewards of our Lord Jesus. Stewardship from God. But the effect of this false teaching, says Paul, is that it drags people away from that fruitful stewardship of the gospel. And so instead of the stewardship of the gospel, they get mixed up instead in these speculations about myths and genealogies. In a similar way, verse 6 talks about wandering away into vain discussion. And you see, don't you, the effect of false teaching is that Christians stop being fruitful. Because they stop thinking about and talking about the gospel. Uh, They ignore the fact that they're meant to be stewards of this gospel. They're thinking about myths and different doctrines instead. They're speculating about these things. They're getting involved in controversies that will divide the church. They're falling out with one another about non-issues. And the result of all of that is that the work of the gospel gets pushed to one side. The effect of false teaching is fruitlessness in the church. And then thirdly, Paul then turns his attention to the false teachers themselves. We've seen, haven't we, the the content of their teaching is false and the effect of it is fruitlessness. And Paul says the teachers themselves are fools. So look at what he says about them in verse 7. These false teachers desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So they might sound impressive. Indeed, Paul says they they make confident assertions. They can be very convincing, very persuasive. They will look genuine. But actually, they're fools says Paul. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. And they want to be considered teachers of the law. That is, they want to be treated like the respected rabbis and scribes in the synagogues of the day. They want to be teachers of the law. But actually, these guys don't know the first thing about how to handle the scriptures, how to read it, how to interpret it, how to apply it to their hearers. 
And in particular, they don't know how to handle the law. Very often, that is a telltale sign of whether or not someone really knows how to handle the Bible or not. What do they do with the law of God? Do they handle it legalistically, saying these are the things you must do to be accepted by God? Do they apply it inappropriately? You you must be circumcised to be saved. Do they add to it, like the, the Pharisees, putting their own commandments on top of the law of God? Do they disregard it, saying, well, if we're saved by grace, the law is no longer of any account to us. We could just ignore it. You see, it's a big issue, isn't it? How someone handles the law of God is a good indication of whether or not they really know how to handle Scripture in general. And that is such an important issue, by the way, that notice the next paragraph where Paul goes on this digression, doesn't he, about how to handle the law properly. He says in verse 8, now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so next time we're in 1 Timothy, we'll unpack that issue carefully, how to use the law lawfully. But for now, the point is simply this, that these guys don't know what they're doing with the law of God. They pretend to be wise, they pretend to be gifted teachers, but really they have no understanding of what they're trying to teach. And so this is what Timothy is up against as he undertakes this this difficult assignment in Ephesus. He's up against these opponents and Paul tells him their teaching is false, the effect of it will be fruitlessness, and the teachers themselves are fools. And in stark contrast to all of that, see what Paul says in these verses about true gospel ministry. In each of these three points that we've looked at so far, there is a contrast between that kind of ministry and true gospel ministry. So we've seen, haven't we, that the false teachers were fools, not worth listening to, not knowing what they're talking about. And yet look at how Paul introduces himself in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour, And of Christ Jesus, our hope. And you see, he is double underlining the fact, isn't he, that he's not like those other teachers. These people who have got into the church in Ephesus, who have no real authority, they're just self-appointed, they're just making things up as they go along. Now Paul, you see, is an apostle by the command of God. He can speak with true authority because he is an apostle appointed to that role by God himself. God the king. By the command of the king, Paul is an apostle. And then what about Timothy, who is actually on the ground there in Ephesus and who is to teach these things to the people there? Well, at the start of verse 2, Paul says that Timothy is his true child in the faith. Now remember how Timothy's mum was a Jewish believer and Timothy's dad was a Gentile unbeliever. Now Timothy would have grown up knowing that there was something of a social stigma attached to this. The community of first century Judaism would have regarded Timothy as an illegitimate child. He would have grown up struggling with that reputation from the Jewish community. 
And you see, Paul speaks here with real tenderness, doesn't he, to this young, timid man, Timothy. He says, you're my true child in the faith. And Paul is saying to him, Timothy, remember this, there are are no illegitimate children in God's family. And in this spiritual sense, Timothy is Paul's true child because he shares the faith of which Paul, by God's appointment, is an apostle. And that's why Timothy, for all of his youth and all of his timidity and all of his frailty, can preach confidently in Ephesus. Because for all of his personal weaknesses and all of his disadvantages in life, he is a true child of the faith and he is preaching the apostolic gospel. It is the test of of any teacher, any preacher, isn't it? Do they preach the apostolic gospel? And then secondly, we've seen that the content of the the false teaching was these myths and these genealogies. And the content of the true gospel is summed up nicely for us in Paul's prayer wish at the end of verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. John Stott writes, Grace is God's kindness to the guilty and undeserving. Mercy, his pity on the wretched who cannot save themselves. And peace, his reconciliation of those who were previously alienated from him and from one another. All three issue from the same spring, namely God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the very heart of the true gospel, isn't it? These are the contents, if you like, of the true gospel, that God, in his steadfast love and kindness, has shown mercy to undeserving people, And in Christ and by grace, he's forgiven all of their sins and he's reconciled them to himself. Justified by faith, they have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. And in the gospel of Jesus and nowhere else, we have this assurance of God's love and the peace of our conscience and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly and finally, we've seen that the effect of the false teaching was fruitlessness because it drags people away from the gospel and the work of the gospel and it drags them into speculations and vain discussions and in verse 5 Paul gives us a beautiful little summary of the effect of true gospel ministry when it's received by faith and he writes the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I think the logic of that verse is best read backwards. When a person responds to the true gospel by sincerely putting their faith in Jesus and in him alone, they receive a good conscience because they know that they're forgiven by God of all of their sin. They're no longer burdened by the guilt of their sin. It's been taken away in Christ. And then by the work of the Holy Spirit, their heart is changed or purified in that it becomes devoted to God above all other things. 
And then the outpouring of that sincere faith in Jesus and that good conscience and pure heart before God is simply love. By which, of course, Paul means both love for God himself and love for others. The two greatest commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor. This is the great effect of the gospel by those who receive it by faith. And brothers and sisters, there are many other so-called gospels out there in the world. And they are filled with falsehood, fruitlessness, and foolishness. But there's nothing like the real gospel. The true gospel of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do praise you for the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the grace, mercy, and peace that is ours in him. And help us, we pray, uh, to be on our guard against any different doctrine uh, that comes our way. We've seen uh, this morning that false gospels taught by foolish people and resulting in fruitless living can so easily attack and undermine the church. We pray you'd help us to be on our guard against these things. We'd be reminded today of one such church facing these very things today. And we pray for them that they would remain steadfast against those who are seeking to infiltrate the church. And as we as a church here listen to the apostolic gospel, we pray that you would work in each of our hearts. We pray you'd give us a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. And thanks to his work, a good conscience before you, and a pure heart, a heart that is devoted to you above all things. Give us a deep love for you and for one another. We ask all of these things for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name. Amen.